Welcome back to Bible Time, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd open this scripture to our hearts and minds and open our hearts and minds to the scripture. Illuminate us, Lord God. We pray this because it's so necessary. Lord, we need you today. We need you to teach us today. We're applying for help. We're applying, Lord, as students at a school, at the school of Almighty God. Lord, we're coming to you with your curriculum, your Bible, and we're coming to you and asking your teacher, the Holy Ghost, to teach us all things whatsoever you said and bring those things to our remembrance. And we're asking you, Lord God, to prepare our hearts as only you can do and supernaturally impart understanding and wisdom and obedience and a repentant heart to turn from our own ways to your ways and help us, Lord to be more like Jesus. Change us into the image of Christ. Use this scripture today, I pray, to comfort and edify, exhort, rebuke, reprove. Lord, whatever it needs to do, I pray that it would accomplish that for which it is sent in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen. Here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, there is an astounding, amazing, incredible, um, eye-opening, mind-bending statement made. Now, somebody might automatically go to that thief in the night and point at that, and another may go to the day of the Lord, and those are amazing. But actually, in all actuality, what is most amazing of all is there in the very beginning of the text, for yourselves know perfectly, he said. Here the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Ghost, commends the Thessalonican church that they know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. This is the fledgling church. This is the startup church. This is that jumpstart church that God started by the power of his Holy Spirit through the work of Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus in three Sabbath days reasoning together. And Paul will tell us in 2 Thessalonians that while he was still with them, he opened up end times prophecies to them and revelations in the scriptures and showed them what was coming through the word of God. We talked a little bit about that yesterday, about how amazing it is that the apostle Paul started his discipleship program with end times prophecy and how in our day in the United States of America, as far as my limited experience is concerned, most people think that end times prophecy is meat for those who have their senses um, ready by reason of use and have grown in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Well, the reality is that eschatology, as we call it, is actually milk that belongs to babies. That's what's amazing. That's what's mind-bending. The reality is that God wants you to know what he's going to do. God wants you to understand end times prophecy. God wants you to have no doubts, to have no um, fears, to have no smoke and mirrors about it. Now, we know that Daniel, he was troubled. We may see that today. I don't know if we'll get there or not. We have so many Bible verses to go to. We're not going to get to them all. We're going to do our best to at least list them so that you can write them down and go back to them and read them for yourself later. But Daniel had a vision of the end times that he understood not, and he fasted and prayed for 21 days, and he finally got the answer, and the devil had resisted him. And we always quote that to kind of bolster our self-righteousness whenever we have an understanding about end times prophecy, and we kind of feel like we've attained something. But listen to me, Daniel fasted and prayed, Daniel got the answer, Daniel wrote it in a book, and now you can read it without fasting and without praying. I'm not saying 
saying that you never need to fast and pray. But what I am saying is that you can read the prophecy and the revelation that Daniel labored in prayer and fasting for. This stuff is already written down for you. God just wants you to go back to the Bible. You don't need smoke and mirrors, eschatology, prophecy, end times revelation. You don't need a bunch of hoopty doopty prophets running around and trying to make revelation revelation level prophecies and pretending to have apostolic power like John and Peter as if there's some apostle of the Lamb. You just need the Bible. Here was a brand new baby upstart church that had had three days with the apostle Paul. They'd had a visit from Timotheus and yet the apostle Paul by inspiration of the Holy Ghost said, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Hallelujah. Now, young man, I'd like you to get me some water, please. Thank you. (coughs) Keep praying for my cough and my throat. I would appreciate that. It is a thorn in my flesh. (coughs) All right, so the day of the Lord is the first part here. Yourselves know perfectly, and he makes a statement that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Well, this thief in the night will come back up in our study of 1 Thessalonians in just two more verses. So we're going to kind of just touch that today and focus in on the day of the Lord today in our study and hopefully get back to that thief in the night. I'm leaving so much uncovered that it's incredible. I feel like we're just barely brushing the surface of every one of these verses. I'm really disappointed in my ability or my inability to to communicate even the truth that my feeble mind has grasped from the scripture. And I'm fully aware that my feeble mind has not grasped even a fraction of the amount of truth that God has in his word. I'm only beginning to see this. I feel in many ways, um, no, no match even for the Thessalonican believers. Whenever I tackle this subject, it's such a big subject and it's all through the Bible. Um, there in second and first Thessalonians five, he's going to say in verse four, but ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Let's look at that, that, that day in verse three, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. So this day of the Lord is going to be like travail on a woman with child. That means a woman who's ready to have a baby and all of a sudden the, her water breaks and the contractions set in and she says it's time. That means then there's no time to do anything else. There's no time to go somewhere. There's no time to change places. You're just going to have a baby. If you're in the car on the side of the road, if you're in a barn, if you're um, down in Bethlehem behind the inn, it doesn't matter where you're at. When it's time for the baby to come, the baby comes and there's no stopping the baby when the baby comes. It's time, and when it's time, it's time. And until it's time, it's not time. And that's just how it works. You can do things to encourage it, but even at the end of the day, the time is set, and until that time comes, it's not going to come. And when it comes, it's going to come. That's the whole idea here, that this day of the Lord is like a woman about to have a baby, and when it's time, it's coming on. And when it comes on, it's coming on hard. It's going to stop everything. Life is going to cease to function as you know it and will take on a wholly different aspect for everybody on the face of the earth when this day of the Lord comes. This is an irreversible day. Whenever a woman has a baby, that's an irreversible thing. There's no stuffing the baby back in the tummy. It doesn't work. 
when the day of the Lord comes, the day of the Lord will come. And when it came, it came. And there's no undoing it. It is a fixed point. And we'll see later that it's a point that is designated in the sovereign will of God that cannot be changed by man. A lot of people say we need to hurry up and preach the gospel so that the so that Jesus will come back. Well, you can try to encourage the day of the Lord to come quicker than it will come, but I've got news for you. It's not coming till the day that God said it's going to come. You better find a different motivation for obedience to the Lord. By the way, that motivation should be love. If you love the Lord and you love your neighbor, you cannot cease to, to preach the gospel and share the gospel with those people that you come into contact with. It's just the nature of that whole thing. We don't need eschatology to force us to twist our arm into obeying the Great Commission. The reality is we just need to love God more. And the reality is that eschatology in times theology is going to happen whether you understand it or not, whether you have the right doctrine or not, whether you want it to come or not. The day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. Go to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23. This is where um, the day of the Lord really pops up in a prophecy here, 2 Samuel 23. There's other day, there's other places as well in the Old Testament, even before this, but this to me is one of the um, clearest prophecies, um, early prophecies. There's also a prophecy that Enoch made, but that's not recorded till the book of Jude. And so we may or may not get to that today. Lo, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute vengeance. And we'll see. We may get there or not. I believe it's um, around verse 26 or something. I didn't even write it down because I don't think we're going to get that far. But if we do, we'll go find it. It's pretty easy to find. Judah has one chapter. Now, 2 Samuel 23 and verse 4. These are the last words of David. Now, in these last words of David, he says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. This is a sermon in and of itself. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth. Now what did Jesus call the evening and the morning? In Genesis. The first day. So that was a literal 24-hour day that happened there in Genesis, and it was the evening and the morning. Here you find the morning dawning. He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth. Now God calls the day. Oh boy, we're just going to have to slow down and plow, and if we run out of time, we run out of time, and maybe have to pick it up another time. There's too much here. The evening and the morning are the first day. The day started for the Jew at sundown when it got very dark. You would have the brilliant display of light of the sun setting and then the sun would be down and it would be the beginning of the next day. That's how they saw it. And so they would go to sleep at the start of their day. Around 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock in the evening, their day is already begun the next day, and they're doing preparations for their day. And then they lay down and rest, and then they wake up and work the rest of the day. That's how the Jews talked about the day. And the reason for that is because that's how God talked about the day. The evening and the morning are the first day. Now, in the American system and in a lot of places in the world, we count the day from midnight. God counted it six hours earlier from the evening when the sun set. <coughs> now, 
This all matches up all through the Bible. There is a sequence that God gives throughout the Bible. God is not going to tell you what time and date Jesus Christ will appear, but God gives you the sequence of events and he gives you the way that it will unfold so that you don't have to have any doubts. Everybody here, God wants you to understand what's going to happen and how Jesus is going to come back. How many of you here today want to figure it out? How many of you want to know how Jesus is coming back and what's going to happen? Well, good, because that's what we're studying today. So here in chapter 23, you have the morning, and in the morning you have the appearance of this ruler. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth. Even a morning without clouds is the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. That is resurrection. When you have seeds fall into the ground and die and then come up. So you here you have the light of the morning after a period of darkness a period where there was not this brightness. So you have a period of darkness followed by the appearance of light of the sun, which is exactly like the description of Jesus Christ coming back. And then you have the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain, which is a picture of the resurrection and the dead rising from the dead. And he says, although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things in for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. He says, this isn't what I am. God's made me this promise. This is coming from my house. There's a king coming. God's made an everlasting covenant with me, David, that of my physical seed will sit on my physical throne in my physical kingdom, a king who will rule over men and be just, and his rule and his reign will be as the morning sun rising and the tender grass coming up after as a clear shining after rain with the beautiful rays of the sunlight shining on the wet grass from the from the pouring torrential storm that has just gone through it and he says though my house is not this today it will be God will bring this about but the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away this ties in with what Jesus said and what John the Baptist prophesied about Jesus that he will burn the thorns with unquenchable fire. Here he says the thorns will be thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands, but the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. This is a perfect prophecy that exactly lines up with the rest of the scripture about the day of the Lord. Here, Second Samuel is alluding to this day of the Lord. He alludes to the perfect rule of Jesus Christ, of the judgment of the damned, of the judgment of the rebels against God. The day of the Lord is the judgment of God on the nations of this world. The day of the Lord is the conquest of those nations by Christ in the flesh. And the day of the Lord is the subsequent ruling of those nations for a thousand years by the risen, resurrected, physical Jesus Christ in his flesh sitting on the literal throne of David in Israel and Jerusalem on Mount Zion with a new temple built over the top of the Dome of the Rock, which will be destroyed.
This is what is being talked about in the Bible by the day of the Lord. And it says that he will rule until all his enemies are made his footstool. This is all over the Bible. Now you say, wait a second, that's not all going to happen in a day. And that is true. It is a mistake to think that the day of the Lord is limited to the first day in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is both a literal 24-hour period, the first moment in a physical date, in a literal point in time that God the Father has set when Jesus Christ will appear to judge the earth and be seen by all the nations of the world. But the day of the Lord is not limited to that 24-hour period. The day of the Lord is also a day, an age of ruling and reigning. Man is bound by time. You better get this down. Man is bound by time. God is not. And God is the one that tells you whether his day is an age or whether his day is a literal day. In the book of Genesis chapter one, God says the evening and the morning were the first day. There is no room in that passage of scripture for an age. And people go and they will use this kind of stuff like the day of the Lord and take it and superimpose these things on other passages of scripture instead of allowing the Bible to define itself. The Bible will tell you when it's talking about a literal 24 hour day and when it's talking about a age, a longer period of time. So man is bound by time and the day of the Lord will come in man's estimation, a 24 hour period when the literal Jesus Christ will appear from heaven on an exact day and hour and minute and second. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But then he will reign for a thousand years, which is 8,760,000 hours. And it will be his day. And you say, that's not fair. God never said he was fair. God never pretended to be fair. God never tried to be fair. God is just. God is equitable. God is holy. God is righteous. God is true. God's words never fail. God is, God will be true though all men be a liar, but God never said he would be fair. God is the creator. You are the created. God is the sovereign. You are the subject, whether you own him as your king or not. There's a lot of thing out stuff out here about lordship salvation back and forth arguments and all that listen to me today whether you are saved or not jesus christ is your lord and your knee will bow to him one day and your mouth will confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father he be king he is god almighty and he doesn't have to get your permission for anything he made you he made the air you breathe he made the grass that feeds the cattle that you ate for dinner last night. He ate. The, he made the wheat that grew up to make your bread. Jesus Christ is God, and he answers to no man for what he does. He, <coughs> hallelujah. He doesn't have to explain himself to anybody, but he does explain himself because he loves you and he wants you to know God is not dependent on time. So you must understand, you must look at the Bible and when it talks about the day of the Lord, you have to look and see what part it's talking about. And this will depend on whose perspective is being given. Be careful, use the context, believe God and humble yourself enough to admit when you are wrong. Go to 
2 Peter 3 and verse 8. <coughs> Pardon me. 2 Peter 3 and verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. So here you have these heavens passing away with a great noise. And when these heavens pass away, that's the day of the Lord. So which is it? Is it the Lord ruling that is the day of the Lord? Or is it the heavens passing away that is the day of the Lord? It is both. The day of the Lord includes when Jesus Christ returns, and it includes when he puts down all rule. And it listen, I'll just I'll just cut to the chase here for um, simplicity's sake and give you the sequence that is all through the Bible, and we'll look at it through the Bible. The day of the Lord begins is preceded by the catching away of the bride of the Lord. That is clear throughout scripture. There is no doubting it unless you doubt the Bible. There, then the day of the Lord begins publicly in wrath and anger whenever Jesus Christ comes back to make war with all the armies of the earth. The day of the Lord then brings the restoration of Israel, then the millennial reign, then the eventual rebellion of earth and all the inhabitants thereof with the devil, and then in the final battle and destruction of Christ's enemies, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, then come at the end. And that can all be laid out. Now, um, if you want to lay that out, we'll, we'll try and give you the verses later. Either that or else I'll put them in the description with a little outline there and you can study it out for yourself. That's all through Revelation 19 and 20. And it gives you that imperfect sequence if you look at it also with the preceding by the catching away is also there in Revelation. Now, um, this day of the Lord that you see is as a thousand years to us, but that thousand years to God is as a day. It goes by like a day because God is outside of time. Now there in second Peter, he was quoting Psalms 90 verse four. You can go ahead and turn there. We'll look at that real quick. But before we read that, I want to read a little more here in Peter, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that the, all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So go to Psalm chapter 90. So this day of the Lord culminates and concludes with the burning up of the heavens and the earth. The elements, the Bible says there, will melt with a fervent heat. And when those elements melt, we're talking about a minimum of 5,000 degrees 
Fahrenheit. There will not be a molecule unmelted. The, the most difficult to melt element will melt. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. That is the culmination of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord opens with his wrath and his anger against his enemies, and it closes with his wrath and his anger against his enemies. Therefore, throughout the word of God, when you read about the day of the Lord, you will often read about his wrath and his anger against his enemies. You'll read about his wrath, and then you'll read about in the next verse how he restores Israel. In another place, you'll read about how he restores Israel, and then you'll read about his wrath. And it'll seem confusing, especially if you read all the junk out there that's available instead of sticking to your Bible. But if you look at the outline that God gave you, listen to me, it's simple. That's why we have a new covenant made on better promises. And we have the revelation of God's will given to us and eschatological truth is given to you in the Bible, spoon fed. It's right there, ready for you to ingest. A lot of people will say, well, how come a lot of our old um, church fathers, our our great scholars, and everything didn't believe in the catching away of the church and they didn't believe that Israel um, was literal and all this stuff because scholars have never believed it. Scholars have never believed anything. Old scholars, new scholars, trash scholars, all junk. They don't believe God by and large. Pastor Edge pointed out the other day, look up where scholars is in your Bible. Look how God uses that word. People who think they're so wise and they're wise in their own conceit and their knowledge has puffed them up and they can't understand the Bible. By the way, you can't honestly say that the early church believed false doctrine as you believe it, like covenant theology and kingdom now and all the rest of that trash. If you say that, you are relying on those people who have been popular enough with the general public's opinion, even in times whenever the true church of Jesus Christ has been burning at the stake, that you are taking those men's word as if it represents the true church. What folly. The reality is that the true church of Jesus Christ has been like Thessalonica ever since Thessalonica and before. The true church of Jesus Christ has been persecuted and many, if not most, if not all of the greatest men of God have very little published works. The best of the best spend their times in dungeons, they get fed to lions, they get burned at the stake, and this is God's way. So before you go quoting a bunch of scholars and commentators and all this kind of stuff that were part of the Anglican Church and other Presbyterian post-Catholic come out of the great whore-style churches that brought all the baggage of Catholic theology with them, I I ask you just go back to the Bible. And don't you tell me that because those people didn't believe the Bible. I can't believe it today. Amen. I'm going to believe the Bible whether Luther missed it on this or not. I'm going to believe the Bible whether Knox missed it on this or not. I thank God for how God used those men, but they missed it on a lot of things. I'm going to stick with the Bible, no matter who says what. I don't care who says it. If you say something and the Bible says the opposite, you are wrong. Period. If I say something and the Bible says the opposite, I am wrong. Period. We go with the Bible. That's why we call this thing Bible time. Amen. Psalm 90 and verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past. (coughs) Excuse me. And as a watch in the night. 
as a watch in the night, he says, thou carriest them away as with a flood. So here he's talking about this, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. We don't have time, so we're just going to do what we can do. We're just going to dive into Psalm 90 here for a minute. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest return ye children of men and then we get to this thousand year verse which is in Peter used to give validity to the coming day of the Lord and this verse therefore is a prophetic verse and it says for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past and as a watch in the night so before the thousand years again you find the pattern the sequence of events all throughout the scripture and here he has thou turnest man to destruction but the believer here who is writing this says Lord thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations and the believers in Jesus Christ will be in their dwelling place when God turns man to destruction and then the thousand year reign will follow Look at this. It comes with verse five, destruction. So you have destruction in verse three and destruction in verse five with a thousand years in the middle. And that thousand year sandwich has two buns of destruction. It has a piece of destruction bread in verse three and a piece of destruction bread in verse five, because the thousand year reign of Christ, the day of the Lord is bracketed with the wrath of God. Seven year tribulation followed by the destruction of the armies of the world by Jesus Christ in his physical bodily return turn, read Zechariah 12 through 14, get the skinny on that, get the lowdown, get all the information you can get that Zechariah 12 and um, 13 and 14. And here you have the thousand year reign followed by another battle. We'll see that in Revelation 20. He says in verse five, thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep in the morning. They are like grass, which groweth up. Isn't that interesting where he brings in that grass growing up just like David did in the morning it flourisheth and groweth up in the evening it is cut down and withereth so the grass groweth and flourisheth for the thousand year reign in the evening in the in the conclusion of the day of the lord the grass is cut down and withereth and we'll find out why when we read the last um, in a couple chapters in revelation here if we get there today for we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath are we troubled thou hast set our iniquities before thee our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. By the way, in the millennial reign, you will not be able to sin anything but a secret sin. And only some of your secret sins will even be allowed to pass. By and large, the only secret sin that I can even see being allowed during the middle millennial reign is a deep inward hatred for Christ that will smolder and fester beneath the surface of everybody's religion while everybody goes to the millennial temple and worships Christ and bows their head to Christ lest they suffer his wrath and his rod of iron. So he says, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance for all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years yet is their strength labor and 
sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. And he has a prayer here. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. God wants you to number your days. He wants you to look for the day of the Lord. He wants you to prepare hasting for the day of the Lord. Teach us, he says, to number our days. And look, look at, look at, look at verse 13. Teach us to, in 12, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Verse 13, return, O Lord. Psalm 90, verse 13, return, O Lord, how long? And here he calls on God to return. And he's looking, therefore, for the return of Christ. Right here in Psalm 90. (coughs) Hallelujah. Now, there's other applications here, but this is that which points forward to that which to what is coming. Look what he says in verse 14. Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work, let thy work, let thy work appear. You say, what's the big deal about that? If we can get to the verse where it will specifically say that Jesus Christ has a work. When Jesus Christ comes back for the millennial reign, it will be his work. And it says, let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. His work is before him and his reward is with him. That's what that other verse, I don't remember the reference to, I think I have it written down, will say about Jesus Christ. And here it says, establish the work of our hands. That's the reward. And it speaks of his work that is with him. Amazing. Psalm 91 jumps in with, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And we, I, I'm, my mind's just going too many places. We've got to rein us in and stick to the main task here so we look at the day of the Lord. Go to Isaiah real quick. Isaiah deals with the day of the Lord more than any other single prophet. So we have gone to Isaiah for our case study here. But there's so much more that you will study as you read your Bible. As you read your Bible, get a highlighter, get a pen, get something, and mark the day of the Lord in that day, at that day, the day, those kinds of phrases as you read through the prophets and note in your mind what he's talking about and he'll give you little snapshots, little cameos, if that's the right word. I don't even know if it is. Just little snapshots of what's going to come in that day. So go to Isaiah chapter 2 and we're going to start seeing some of the multitude of references to that day. Some of the that days that Isaiah speaks of are now. Some of them are later. Some of them are millennial reign. But most of them here will point to to the day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 11, he kicks off with the lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. By the way, the verse before that in chapter 2 verse 10, enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. The Bible says that during the wrath of God, the seven year tribulation that God will allow to come upon the earth in the beginning, in the evening 
evening time of the day of the Lord, when that tribulation begins to take the earth, the men will hide themselves in the holes and in the rocks of the earth. It says they will cast their idols into the bats in the holes and in the rocks of the earth. In the prophets and in the revelation, it says that they will hide in the caves of the earth and say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the lamb. It says the lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Look at verse 12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up and he shall be brought low. Go to verse 17. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be made low and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Verse 18. And the idols shall he utterly abolish. 19. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for the for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth in that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made each one for himself to worship to the moles and to the bats to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth this is the day of the Lord so we find here a shaking of the earth we find a fear that comes upon the people of the earth we find a hiding in the holes and in the rocks. We find a casting away of idols, trying to get rid of the evidence. Man will be trying to hide their sin. Get it away from me. Get this idol away from me. It's not doing me any good. Here comes King Jesus in his power. The earth is shaking. The water's blood. The the sky is darkened. The stars are falling to earth. The, The oceans are being destroyed. The islands are melting into the sea. The mountains are melting like wax before the Lord. And the glory of his majesty who can stand before him and they'll cast their idols into the holes and to the bats in the rocks and in the holes and in the caves Isaiah 3 and 7 in that day shall he swear saying I will not be a healer for my house is neither bread nor clothing make me not a ruler of the people so here's a man saying I can't lead this people and nobody will want to be in charge in that day the lofty looks of man will be made low nobody is going to want to stand up and say, I'll be king, I'll be president, I'll be governor, I'll be mayor, I'll be captain of the host, I'll be general. In that day, the lofty looks of men shall be humbled and men will be cast down and Jesus Christ will reign supreme and nobody will move their tongue against him and you won't find anybody trying to raise their head up and take power. Verse 18, in that day... (coughs) Speaking of the daughters of Zion, the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments. Boy, we could get into a study here. We're going to skip it for now. You can read what he says he's going to do to all the bracelets and the earrings and the wimples and the crisping pins. All of these things that these girlies think are so cute and wonderful and they put all their pictures on Pinterest. God says, I'm going to smite their head with a scab. God will bring down the high looks of man. He will bring down the vanity and the beauty of the daughters of Sodom. What a day that will be. Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 1. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man. There will be a scarcity of men. In that day shall the branch of the Lord, verse 2, be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. 
And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. And he goes on with many more references to Jerusalem on down into chapter five, where the millennial kingdom of Israel is counted as a vineyard and a fruitful hill ties into song of Solomon, the millennial reign of Christ. By the way, we could do song of Solomon. And this sequence of events that I've given you, the catching away of the bride, the wrath and anger of God, destruction of his enemies, restoration of Israel, physical reign on the literal throne of David in the literal city of Jerusalem over there by the Mediterranean Sea. The rebellion of the whole earth a thousand years later with the devil and the final battle, destruction of Christ's enemies, the melting down of the earth, recreation of the earth, and the turning of the kingdom over to God the Father. This sequence is in Song of Solomon. It's everywhere. It's all through the Bible. This sequence of events happens in this order over and over and over and over and over and over again. It happens in literal prophecies that are given. It happens in typology. It happens in pictures. It happens in poetry, in the Psalms, in the prophetic poetry of the Psalms. It happens over and over again. This is the only rightly divided understanding of the sequence of events of the end times. You say, wow, you're full of pride. The greatest scholars haven't got it figured out. Haven't you got it figured out that I already told you that the greatest scholars don't have it figured out? And they never will because the loftiness of their own minds clouds their vision. You say, well, how did you figure it out? Because I'm a nobody, that's how. And God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the base things and the things that are weak to confound the mighty. This is God's way. And this little poor sinner turned to God in desperation because he had to preach on this stuff in a pulpit before God's people. And he didn't know what to do. So he prayed and said, God, show me. And the Bible came alive. And from Genesis to Revelation, this sequence of end times events is throughout the Bible. There's too much there to possibly cover, obviously, from Genesis to Revelation. My, oh, my. Now, again, I don't have every single detail lined out and figured out, but I've got the basics figured out. And what I've also figured out is that God shows us in his word that the basics are child stuff. It's the milk. And God wants you to get it. God wants us to have it. This is this stuff. God wants you to be settled on this stuff. God doesn't want you shaken and moved in your mind as that the day of the Lord has already come. He wants you to know the sequence of events. He wants you to know the basic order of events. God is a God of order. And God doesn't want you to be rattled around every time some new prophet comes to town with further revelations about the end times. God wants you to be settled. He wants you to be established. He wants you to be sure. My God in heaven, what a glorious Bible. Chapter 5 and verse 30. And in that day... They shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. So there you have again another day where there's um, destruction and darkness following a day that everyone that is left and remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy. So you have that sandwich of destruction, peace, destruction, destruction, thousand year reign, destruction, new heaven and new earth. It's all through the Bible. Um, Isaiah 6 and verse 18, in the day that 
in the year that King Uzziah died, and this should be chapter 7, here in chapter 6, God, um, Isaiah sees God, says, here am I, send me. In chapter 7 and verse 17, the Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from that the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day, in the same day, in verse 20, and that day in verse 21, in that day in verse 21. You can read all of these in these judgments. This is, and he's speaking of the day of Emmanuel now. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, chapter 10 and verse 17. And these, I didn't even, this isn't even like exhaust. These are just what I have found um, just in my reading of the Bible. There are more references to that day. Um, Chapter 10, verse 20, And it shall come to pass that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote him. And verse 27, It shall come to pass in that day that the burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder. Chapter 11 and verse 10, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. Verse 11, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand against this again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, and from Pathros, and from Cush. There's the restoration of Israel. And again, these things are given. You just look at the context. Look at what he's saying as God gives you line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, they may fall and go backward and stumble and be broken and taken and snared. God does it this way so that the smart alecks who think they're so wise in their own conceits that they know everything and God knows nothing will miss it. And so that the dumb, foolish, ignorant folk who just trust God and ask him to open the Bible to him and believe what it says will get it. Because here it's put in such a way where God will tell you a little bit and then he'll back up and he'll tell you a little bit about a different part. And then he'll tell you a little bit about a different part. And you get all the pieces of the puzzle, but given as a puzzle on purpose by God. Where do we get the puzzle fully put together? You'll see it put together in Revelation, especially this day of the Lord, especially seen in Revelation 19 and 20. So you have the day of the Lord in chapter, um, we looked at chapter 10, chapter 11, 10 and 11. The Lord restoring Israel, restoring the people. Chapter 12 and verse 4, In that day shall you say, Praise the Lord. Wait a second, I thought in the day of the Lord that you would have the elements burn with a fervent heat. You will. But again, the day of the Lord from God's perspective is a thousand years. So that day is one of the physical, literal days, 8,760,000 days of the millennial reign that is the day of the Lord. <clears throat> and the Bible, the Bible gets to define itself and tell you when. It's talking about a literal day and an age. Isaiah 17 and verse 4. Isaiah 17, 4 says, And in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. Now it's talking about some judgment. Gleaning grapes left in it. Verse 6, 7. Verse 7, At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. He shall not look to the altars, the work of his hands, neither shall respect that which his fingers have made, either the groves or the images. In that day shall his strong cities be as a forsaken bow. Isn't that interesting? Interesting as today, strong cities are no longer even a thought as a defense and people flee the cities when war breaks out. And guess what? We're preparing for that day. It's coming. 17, 7. 
and 9 we looked at. 18.7 talks about that time. In that time shall be the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts of a people scattered and peeled from a people terrible from the beginning hitherto. A nation meted out and trodden underfoot whose land the rivers have spoiled to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount of Zion. This is the Gentiles being brought to worship God and being brought in subjection. A people scattered and peeled but being brought to stand before God. By the way, the Navajo nation, the um, Cherokee nation, all these scattered and peeled nations of people who've been subjugated, people who've been broken down, people who have been defeated over the course of history will be gathered to stand before God and worship the King Jesus Christ at that time. Um, chapter 19, Isaiah nineteen sixteen. In that day shall Egypt be like unto a woman, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shaketh over it. And all you people that say that God's a chauvinist and that you're mad at God because he said that the Israel be like a woman, you're going to be like a woman and you're going to be afraid and shake, whether you, want, whether you agree with God's terminology or not. Verse 18, In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts. One should be called the city of destruction. In that day, verse 19, shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. Again, we're just giving you the cherries on top of the ice cream sundaes. You're going to have to go and eat the ice cream yourself. These, you got to get the context for these to understand what God's saying. But here are clues and puzzle pieces about the day of the Lord. Isaiah 22. Some of these, and you've got to get the context for the timing in case I mixed in a day that was one of the present days. Um, Isaiah 19, in that day... Um or 1923, and that day there shall be a highway. This is a mind blower. Here God gathers Assyria, Egypt, and in that day, verse 24, shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, when the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of mine hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. That ain't happened yet. None of that has happened yet. Egypt, Assyria, and Israel, a threefold cord that is not quickly broken, described here a blessing in the midst of the land, getting along and loving each other. That's what it's talking about. Isaiah chapter 22. That's during that back there is during the day of the Lord, during the millennial reign of the Lord. Um, chapter Isaiah 22 and verse 12. And in that day did the Lord of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth. He's rebuking the nation, and instead they're eating flesh, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. And this describes the attitude of the people in the day of the Lord. They will not turn to the Lord with all their heart. <coughs> It describes before the day starts. It describes after the day has been, the evening before as the evening of the day of the Lord and the evening at the end of the day of the Lord. Because the people at the thousand year reign will be eating and drinking wine and eating flesh um, and it's and let us eat and drink for tomorrow we shall die will be their attitude because they'll be angry at God and whenever the devil's loose, they'll go right with him. Anyway, moving on, Isaiah 25, 9. There's so much here and it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We're getting up to some real nuggets here. Um, Isaiah 26, and that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. 
in that day. Hallelujah. Um, 26.1 here, um, this leads into the resurrection of the dead. This is amazing. You can read the whole chapter, get the context. We get down here and they say, we have been with child in verse 18. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. And he says here to them, this promise from God, thy dead men shall live together with my dead body. Shall they arise? What? God just said, thy dead men shall live together with my dead body. Shall they arise? How does God have a dead body? What? Somebody help me out there. What is he talking about? Anybody? How does God have a dead body? Come on. It's real. It's simple, but it's mind blowing. When did God die? At the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ died. And what is he saying here? Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body. Shall they arise? This is really important. This is absolutely key. This is going to give you. Hallelujah. This is going to give you help when you get to the New Testament. Because there's a place where there's a carcass in the New Testament. Well, I don't know if we'll get to that today, but this ties in. Here, Jesus Christ is called the dead body of God. Now he's, re- he's alive and he's resurrected, but this references his death. And it says, thy dead men shall live together with my dead body. Shall they arise? Awake and sing ye that dwell in dust for thy dew is as the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead. Now there the dead arising again. And you see the dew being brought in there like the clear shining after rain, the morning where the grass is growing up and there's the resurrection. And then look at, whoa, praise God. Look at what it says in verse 20. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Here is the wrath of God against the unbelieving world for the innocent blood that they have shed. This is not the wrath of God against his people and he says come my people enter thou into thy chambers Jesus said if I go away I will come again he says I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house are many mansions and he calls his people into the chambers says shut thy doors about thee who is the door Jesus Christ is the door of the sheep and his people in him thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they rise awake and sing ye that dwell in the dust for thy do is as the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead here it is in the evening in the twilight when the church has, has failed to complete the great commission and they have brought forth nothing they've been in travail like a woman with child in pain to deliver and have brought forth nothing they said and Jesus says to them thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they rise and he promises the resurrection and the life that will come and they'll be caught up into the chambers of God the doors shut about them for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed hallelujah listen pre millennial tribulation 
pre-tribulational rapture of the church, catching away of the bride of Christ before the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth. Hallelujah. Listen, if you can't get this, it's because you don't want to get this. It's all through the Bible. Chapter 27, in that day, the Lord with his sword and great strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent. That's Satan. All you people out there that say that Jesus Christ is going to punish his church with the tribulation have not even gotten the basic child milk of the word of God figured out. You need to repent of all the junk you've read and get back to the Bible. Humble yourself before God and read the Bible. The tribulation is to punish the devil. It's to punish the inhabitants of the earth who have rejected the gospel and shed the blood of the prophets. It's also the time of Jacob's trouble (coughs) where God purges the iniquity of Jacob. You can see that. You keep going down in that day, singing unto her, 27, two, a vineyard of red wine. That's Israel. I, the Lord, do keep it. So his people are caught up into the chambers. The vineyard of red wine is being kept by God, watered every day, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. God keeping his vineyard through the tribulation. Fury is not with me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Again, referencing 2 Samuel and the prophecy that that David prophesied on his deathbed of Jesus Christ going through the thorns and the briars and he says or let them take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me he shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the earth with fruit. He hath smitten him as he smote those that hath he smitten him as he hath smote as he smote those that smote him, or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? In measure, when it shooteth forth, thou wilt debate with it. He stayeth his rough wind in the day by the east wind. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged, and this is all the fruit to take away his sin. When he maketh all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, the groves and the images shall not stand up. Hallelujah. And it goes on. The day of the Lord, that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river under the stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. So right here in Isaiah, you have the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, the catching away of the church, the Lord coming out of his place to punish the earth, protecting his vineyard through the tribulation while using the tribulation to purge Jacob of his sins and yet restoring Israel in the midst of it all and gathering them one by one. Verse 13. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. Hallelujah. The trump of God shall be blown. The great trumpet. And they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Um, Chapter 28 verse 5. In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people. And then here we get this line upon line, precept upon precept. We don't even have time to even get into that. 29, <coughs> 20, excuse me, 28, 5. There has the in that day. 29, 18 has another in that day. Let's look at that one real quick. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity. He talks about their wisdom being taught by precept of men. And this is a call to Ariel, Ariel, the city of David, where David dwell, add ye year to year. And he says, I will distress Ariel. And here God is recounting to Ariel their offenses. 
He's recounting to Ariel the rejection of Christ, which is what this is all talking about. And then in verse 30, woe to the rebellious children, chapter 30, the rebellious children say at the Lord that take counsel, but not of me. Now jump ahead. We've got here a shift to the end times, Armageddon, all of this stuff coming up, which all has to deal with the day of the Lord. Um, But let's go to chapter 40. We're going to try and just get through um, just Isaiah. We're going to have to leave the rest of all these verses for another time. But here in Isaiah in chapter 40, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. So whenever he jumped in, whenever he jumped in there, he dealt with um, Armageddon and all those things. And then there's a break in the prophecy and he tells the story of Isaiah and he begins another prophecy, another set of prophecies. And this new set of prophecies um, that ends after chapter 39, the conclusion of Hezekiah's story begins chapter 40 with Christ the Messiah. And the focus of the entire rest of the book of Isaiah is on Christ the Messiah. We've had almost everything previous was about the day of the Lord. One way or another, it dealt with the day of the Lord. Now the lens is focusing and zooming in on Jesus Christ, the Messiah and his ministry to the church. And it says, um, comfort ye, comfort me, my people saith the, um, saith your God speak ye comfort comfortably. Boy, I'm trying to hurry and it's slowing me down. Forgive me. Lord, help me. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Enter John the Baptist. God have mercy. We're out of time. This thing's either going to go on and on and on. We've got to cut it off somewhere. We may just stop it right here and try and finish Isaiah and finish the rest of this another time. We're talking about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's coming. And boy, this is an amazing study. I thank God for it. We just can't even get all through it. There's so much here. I, we haven't even done half of the notes that I had, and I've excluded things. The whole Bible's packed with this. Listen, we're going to close it down. I believe that's what the Lord would have us to do. I don't want to do that, but I believe that God knows better than I do, so I'll submit. God wants you to know that your authorized version Bible is the prophet's that God's plan is revealed to. Amos 3, 7 says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And you, hold up your Bible. You're holding up God's servants, the prophets. You got the apostles and the prophets in your hand. These people that say, uh, well, your church doesn't have apostles, don't know what they're talking about. Hold your Bible up and show them. I've got the apostles of the Lamb right here. I've got the holy prophets right here. And everything that you guys teach flies in the face of the prophets and the apostles, and I'm not going with you. Listen, you don't need a new prophet, and you don't need a new apostle. You just need to believe the Bible. That's what God wants you to know today. If you've got nothing else out of this whole message, read and believe your Bible. It's going to happen just like God said. It's going to happen. And we'll close. Maybe we'll pick up and do a part two. I don't know. We'll see. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd just take this feeble effort and bless it. And I pray that you'd encourage and comfort the hearts of believers. Help us, Lord, to just believe you. Just to believe you, Lord. Just to read your Bible and believe your Bible. And comfort us with it, Lord, and help us to stand and be established in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen.